I've changed my makeup. Did you notice? Hello and welcome to Something Rotten's season finale on our Killer 7 slash No More Heroes season, Suda51. Blake and I are both now experts, experts in the field of Suda51, and we're here to answer all your questions on it. Uh, Blake. Jacob. What up? Let's talk. Podcast guy to podcast guy. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I'm looking at the numbers right now. Spotify uh, gives podcasters a very interesting map of everywhere your show has been listened to. And Jacob, Jacob, this is not a huge show by any means, but compared to other podcasts I've done, it is definitely a global show. That's right. We're a phenomenon. We're not, but we're listened to all across the world by a very small (laughs) amount of people. I would say, interestingly, you know, I haven't run the raw numbers, but just looking at the map, I would say at least... Half of all the countries on Earth, at least one person has listened to something wrong, which is really crazy to think about. Um, wow. I can just like, screenshot this this map for you. Um, there was something that I feel like Hansen did, maybe on MinMax and maybe even way back on the Game Informer show, where you could get like a list of all the devices oh, that sure, had sure, listened sure. to your thing, and some of them were like a Nintendo DS, yeah, you know, or like a yeah, Zoom. Um, I like all the countries where we've only had like one listen. Like, only one person in Mongolia has ever listened to us, only one time. Hey, and shout out to that person. So I bring all this up. I bring all this up to say. Now, for the listener, the chronology is going to be a little out of whack here, because if you listen to... We're kind of time-traveling. The third episode of next season, you'll hear I brought up the fact that Jacob has not followed me on Blue Sky. Now, this is kind of like a, <laughs> this is kind of like watching uh, A New Hope before uh, episode one, right? Jacob, I want you in front of the world to know their actions to your consequences. Or their consequences their actions to your actions. To my consequences. <laughs> their consequences to your actions. Now I see you grabbing your phone. As, as, yeah, I'm getting ready to block you on Blue Sky. <laughs> well, that's what I want you to know. There are at- consequences to you not following your dearest friend Blake. I'm blocking you on Blue Sky for not following. No. Post hidden. Where no will I get more. pictures of Reagan from now? That's the thing. That's the only place I'm posting them these days. So That's fucked up. Jacob Geller gets a million subscribers, doesn't think he needs to follow Blake Hester anymore. That's all I'm saying, folks. In front of the world, literally half the countries in the world, I've blocked you, know, you like, on Blue Sky. A week and a half ago, I would go on Blue Sky and I was like, hey, this place is like kind of moving now. Yeah. And now I go on there and there are like three people who post a lot. And it's just kind of like, oh, I guess I'm going to read their thoughts. Here's the thing about Blue Sky, uh, why I uh, feel fine blocking you, because no one's posting anything important there and I don't check it. So I'm not going to miss anything nope. from you, but I'm going to stick to my laurels. I'll never unblock you on it. Second, my take on Blue Sky is there's too many fucking posts about Twitter on Blue Sky. It's like, that's like the whole thing. You go on there to complain about a different app. Yeah, that's, it's kind of like the, like, we're going to start a new friend group. And then you go and all you do is talk shit about the other friend group. And it's like, I guess we need more than this yeah. to make something meaningful. Yeah. Anyway, you want to answer some questions? No, <laughs> I've caused a dramatic rift between the podcast hosts here. I, I will say a couple times I've had... I've wanted to tweet something that I just didn't want to read any responses to. Mm-hmm. And so then I have gone on Blue Sky and just tweeted that. Here's the thing. In in the pre-block era, you had a really good Mr. Beast Blue Sky post. <laughs> it was really funny. I like. it. But you'll it. never see another one. Nope, I won't. Um, okay. Blake, let's jump into some questions. Hold on. This um, first one. Oh. I'm sorry. I, in my band's group chat... Right as he said that, I got a text that said, congrats. And I'm un- and the t- text before, I was like, hey, I don't know if I can FaceTime tonight. One of my best friends is getting married, so I'm pretty busy. And one of the dudes just said, 
congrats. And I'm like, does he think I'm getting married? <laughs> like, I don't think I deserve any congratulations. I, I like the idea of just congratulating a <laughs> random friend who is getting married. Yeah, it's just like, he doesn't even know the dude getting married. So anyway. Hey, let, good for let, him. Let's get into it. Um, okay. So the first question we're going to combine two from Mervin and from David Sharp, because they are essentially the same question, which is, hey, Remember when we thought we were going to play Flower, Sun, and Rain instead of No More Heroes? Yeah. Why did we decide to do that? Um, why, you know, why pick Flower, Sun, and Rain over any of Suda's other games? As I recall, you brought up Flower, Sun, and Rain, and I had never heard of it. And I watched a two-minute-long Waypoint video from nearly ten years ago where Austin Walker said, this game, I'm paraphrasing a bit, uh, seems to hate the player. And I said, good enough for me. And he said it. he said it seemed punk. That's I mean it really yeah, it was I I kind of disregarded that part cuz I just am a little over the punk moniker on anything at all including punk music itself. But his like his conversations around how antagonistic the game seemed to be against the player interested me. But I think that was why we ultimately chose not to play it. Because uh, they he didn't include the antagonism of a Nintendo DS emulator <laughs> on your computer screen. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a test of, like, there are obviously a lot of Suda games. And it was, like, some seemed... He has a lot that kind of seem too dumb or did to me previous to this season you know i looked at like shadows of the damned and i was like that game where the guy's gun is like his dick and he like shoots it like he's shooting his dick no thank you not not for me um now having played no more heroes and seeing like how intelligently a dumb uh tone can be set Mm -hmm. maybe i'd enjoy it um but i do think it was you know, and then I kind of had, I kind of didn't want to do No More Heroes just because it seemed, I like the idea of doing a less obvious one, maybe, but I hadn't played No More Heroes, and now having played it, I am, I'm so glad that we did. Yeah, yeah, no, no thoughts, head empty. I'm, I still kind of want to play Flower, Sun, and Rain, but also, like, the barrier to entry with that game right now, it's really keeping me away from it. But I am curious, yeah. like, Grasshopper has been remastering or remaking some of Suda's old games, so I wonder if Flower, Sun, and Rain is, like, on that list somewhere. Don't know. Yeah. Um, Mervin says that um, that the Silver Case trilogy uh, is, like, complex but very good. I do think the challenge with doing a visual novel in general is, like, it's, like, almost the only thing you can talk about is the story. And I sometimes... I'm just kind of a, I, I have trouble following, this This is like an embarrassing thing to admit, but I feel like sometimes I just have trouble following stories where like, sure. I get characters mixed up, I kind of can't remember who's doing what or whatever, and so the the concept of almost exclusively just talking about the story absent from like gameplay or whatever for several podcast episodes is kind of intimidating to me because I just feel like I would be like reveal myself as dumb you know (laughs) now that said on the short list of games i'm really dying to play right now it's basically just the silver case the 25th ward and silent hill 4 actually just watched a video about silent hill 4 and i was like i fuck with this was it uh it was a eurofugs video no it was a youtuber cullen their video the vibes of silent hill 4 i didn't really know anything spell that c-u-l-l-e-n um i didn't really know anything about the game and I watched it, and I was like, holy shit, this is cool. It looks annoying to the play. Room. But yeah. Um, so, that said, 25th Ward and Silvercase are, like, the games I'm dying to play right now. I was looking at the special edition for them recently, uh-huh. and I don't, like, buy physical games, much less special editions of games. But I was like, I think I'm going to pick this up just to have it. So, if we don't do it for something rotten, I'm going to just play it soon. But we'll figure it out. It's on our list. I support you. Thank you. Um, okay, Gretchen writes in with a truly great email yeah, that yeah. I'm going to read in its entirety. Um, Gretchen says, I got both No More Heroes 1 and 2 at a GameStop for 10 bucks each when I was 13, solely because I had heard of the game a couple times on some old top video game bosses ranking lists on YouTube back in the day. Uh, relatable. And Hold wanted up. to check them out. 
What bosses do you think were there from No More Heroes 1? Um, It's like the best bosses of the game. It's the singing guy, right? I guess. I mean, I could imagine them going in like a couple different directions. You know, it's like if it's just kind of craziest bosses, then it could be like Bad Girl or Mm. um, uh, who's the final boss? Gene. Um, Gene. You know, Gene would be like, oh, hardest bosses or something, maybe. But Um, the best is, of course, the old lady. Well, the best is the giant brain that gets sliced in half and you don't fight (laughs) it. Yeah, yeah, that's the best. Okay, okay, let's let's keep going. Okay, Gretchen continues. They were two of my first M-rated games, and to say a budding, edgy teen me was positively gobsmacked by its hyperviolence would be an understatement. Since my media literacy hadn't fully developed proper yet, I could kind of get what the game's messages were putting down, but was far from my biggest takeaway. Their biggest takeaway was... Travis Touchdown looks so cool, I really want to dress like him. For, like, the entire next year of my life, I tried my very hardest to mimic Travis's getup in any way a kid from rural New England with no money could. I'm talking jacket, belts, worn jeans, sunglasses, everything save the pompadour. I think I even asked my parents a few times if I could get a cosplay replica of the jacket on eBay for thousands of dollars, which they reasonably turned down every time. Over time, fair, uh... Over time, various conditions forced me to adapt from going full touchdown. Sunglasses and excessive belts weren't allowed during school hours, and warmer weather forced me to downgrade from leather jackets to flannels and basic overshirts. I would even still sometimes pop the collar like Travis's jacket with the shirts, which only made me look even more like a giga dork. (laughs) Giga dork is so good. By the end, my look was super basic and completely unassuming. Overshirt, t-shirt, jeans, sneakers. It was the same basic outfit I wore for several years later at least until i took more interest in expanding my wardrobe many who knew me just took it as my look but only i knew that the very impetus of such a casual look was none other than mr touchdown himself incredible uh so their question is has a video game ever impacted your wardrobe or attitude in any way if not what's one piece of clothing from a video game you've always wanted um no it hasn't uh for me but the one thing i probably would wear as of course, uh, 9S's outfit from Nier Automata. I'd dress up like a schoolboy <laughs> with the. No, it'd be fucking Leon's jacket from Resident Evil 4. Like, that's the only one. The, that jacket's so sick. Well, so here's the thing about me uh, <laughs> I do have Leon's jacket. Yeah. Um, I, I bought it. It wasn't, it's not a replica, but I was like, I so I studied abroad in Scotland when I was in college, and I, uh, as a boy from North Carolina, did not have jackets that were warm enough for right. uh, that cold ass place. Right. Um, and so I went to like a flea market in London at one point, and I saw that jacket, and I thought that looks warm, and I also thought that looks like Leon S. Kennedy's jacket from Resident Evil Four. So I did buy it because of that, and then. Uh, my other one, the most expensive piece of clothing I own, is I have the the Kim Kitsuragi jacket from Disco Elysium, yeah. which is cool as hell. Um, I would love, honestly, the um, look. Friend of the show, Renata Price, has both the Kim jacket and the Kim pants, um, mm-hmm. and she looks uh, way cooler than I ever have wearing both of them. And it's like. I, it, that look is so good, but I feel like I'm almost just not a cool enough looking person to pull it off. Like, I just kind of look like a dork, and yeah. Ren looks cool um, as hell. I have a remarkably small amount of even just, like, video game shirts, um, but... You have a remarkably large amount of movie shirts. Yeah, 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 because they're sick. Also, my best friend <laughs> runs a bootleg clothing line, so just, I just kind of end up with a bunch of them. Um... Uh, but I, I have, like, one of the PlayStation anniversary hoodies I bought that, honestly, I think is still pretty sick. But one of the ones I have that's so rad, and I've never worn it, is a hat that my dear friend, Matt Leone, sent me. Um, I don't remember why he sent me, and I have no clue how he found this. But it was a promotional hat for, you know, the publisher Acclaim? Long out of business. Published, like, Turok shit like this okay sure um their old baseball game which i cannot remember the name of um acclaimed baseball game all-star baseball yeah yeah the like 2000 release of that 
it's like a promotional baseball cap for All-Star Baseball 2000 in impeccable shape. Like, looks like it's never been worn. It's probably the only piece of video game merch I have that I think is uh, super sick, but I've never worn it. So, there you go. Shouts out to Matt Leon, friend of the show. I don't know if he listens to this. Who do you think is, who's like the most, the best dressed uh, video game character? And why is it Dante from Devil May Cry 3, where he's just wearing that red jacket no, with no shirt? It's not, come on now. <laughs> Um, best dress. I mean, Bayonetta, maybe. I'm trying to think of like actually like like someone. Yeah, if it's I like saw who, them who looks like outside. a normal clothes. You know, it still looks ridiculous. But uh, Lightning from Final Fantasy 13, sure. I always thought was like one of the coolest yeah. Final Fantasy looking characters without being you know like you could see though. The, I think there actually were like actual fashion uh line tie-ins with ff13 and it was like yeah you could see that on a high-end thing she was like famously a louis vuitton model like that was like that's a thing right they did. yeah uh i think video games are by and large dripless <laughs> so it's yeah. hard for me to think of one well you're not you're not jumping for sora like someone something i thought was pretty remarkable all things considered was that the protagonist granted it's a first person game of ghostwire tokyo dressed like a normal fairly fashionable person in their 20s uh-huh like it, he didn't have any flares to him there was no clothes that clearly no one would ever wear he just looked like a normal dude in his 20s that like that's how they would dress like kind of a like hip fashionable dude and i was like wow they actually put the time into like figuring out how human beings dress uh, i can't remember the name of that character but for some reason that's the only one that stands out to me recently so shouts out to ghostwire tokyo an awesome game Love that shit. Friends of the show. Tango Gameworks. Alright, am I um, getting the next one? Yeah, go ahead. Alright, let's see here. This comes in from Neuroflare, who just says, Jacob's a coward. Cat was a great guest. Now, <laughs> Jacob, you might not remember. You on the bonus episode for DMC, you refused to do an Australian accent. Oh, that's right. And I, I said, was like, "Wait, why am I a coward?" And I said, "Listeners, write in and say Jacob's a coward." Uh, but Cat was a great guest. Nebula.tv/slash/sundayrod, and you can listen. Cat um, was awesome. Shouts out to her. Okay, so this one comes in from Roar. I do not have a question, but I do want to tell you about the saga of Harold the Hairy, the first king of Norway. Harold the Hairy. It's kind of hard to say. Because it shares some similarities with the plot of No More Heroes. So, according to uh, Snor Sturlason, Harold was really into this girl named Gaida. Gida? Man, really picked a hard one here. <laughs> so, he sent some messengers to propose marriage to her. She says that she would only accept his offer if he was king of Norway. At that point, Norway is a collection of towns ruled by Jarls, and Harold was just one of these. His messenger basically told Gida, Gaida, Harold is not going to like this, but she sends them on their way. When they reached Harold, he says, sure, send the messages back to Gita. And I'm just going to pronounce it both ways and assume one is right. And goes to conquer most of Norway. Pussy make a man act crazy, I'll tell you what. (laughs) (laughs) Are we allowed to keep that in? Yeah, no, we got it. Okay. Um... At some point, he decides that marrying Gaida is not enough motivation to continue his conquest, so he just decides that he is not going to cut his hair until he is the one king of Norway, thus earning him the name Harold the Hairy. P.S. I bought and played Killer7, so I could play it alongside your pod and found it excellent. That's a great story. Shouts out that to That is so Harold. funny. I love the idea of, like, no one's telling him that he has to cut his hair, yep. but he's just like, well, I'm not going <laughs> to cut my hair until I conquer Norway. Yeah. Uh, I love that dudes have never changed either. Like 800 right. years ago, this dude, he could be in 2023 and he's like, well, I'm not going to cut my hair until uh, I beat all of Dark Souls 3 without dying. It's effectively the same thing, you know? Bro, no, I'm not going to shower until <laughs> I beat Elden Ring. Yeah. Well, look, listen. I'm going to platinum NBA 2K23, and until <laughs> then, I'm only going to eat Hershey's mint chocolate chip kisses. <laughs> That's Dude's rock. Um, I'll read the next one, too. Blake, why'd you just do my voice like that? <laughs> I don't know. Do you play the NBA 2K games? <laughs> no. They're so good. I love the 2K games. We should 
Let's just call it up. I felt that something rotten. Well, what about what's what's the most rotten sport? Because I think it's football. It's football uh, or boxing. Uh, one of the ones that gives people brain injuries by playing. Oh my god! Not too long ago, I watched FD Signifier's Mike Tyson video. Have you seen that? No. Oh my god! A wild journey. Um, gee, I wonder if the Spike Lee joint NBA 2K, whatever year that was. Think there's any rot to that? Wait, what? I I don't know about this. Spike Lee directed the campaign of one of the NBA 2K games. Is it okay? 2K16. The first one is uh, the first result is an article from The Verge called "Spike Lee ruined my favorite NBA 2K16 game mode." Here's the here's the second one. This is a a real classy headline: How Spike Lee didn't do the right thing with NBA 2K16. No, that's good. That's good. That's good. Um. Maybe we should play that. I think that would be an interesting season. First, I would need to learn how to play basketball. Anyway, uh, I'm going to add that one to the list. So this comes in from Hunter. I feel that in Suda's games, perhaps more than any other game you've discussed on the pod so far, human life has little to no value. Killer7 is the best example because the majority of enemies you kill are the smiles, which no longer resemble humans, but in his future titles, especially No More Heroes 1 and 2, all but a handful of characters only exist exist only to be killed or die in spectacular fashion. Additionally, Killer7 gives you almost no one to care about or protect, which gives me the impression that you shoot hundreds of smiles and the two anime girls with no motivation beyond either this is what I've been hired to do or Harmon really hates Kun Lan. Manhunt comes to mind, but I wanted to ask directly, do you feel like how life is valued is a contributing factor to a game's rottenness? If so, what rotten game do you think values human life the least? You're fucked. Hunter. I'm not saying Hunter's fucked. That was his sign-up. Sign-up. <laughs> um, I think there's, like, something inherently uneasy about the lack of humanity in rotten games, you know? Like, when kind of the whole point is, especially Manhunt. Like, we talked early, like, maybe the first episode of Manhunt, we talked about that first kill, where it's like, yeah, we're led to believe that that was staged that person died just so like cash in game and in the world could be comfortable with killing right like that person was just a pawn and i remember that being like very unsettling that said next season which we're not divulging i think like uh puts a lot of work into humanizing even the most basic npc enemy characters Mm -hmm. um in ways that i think are equally troubling so i don't think it's like kind of one or the other I think there are ways that both can be equally as like disconcerting to me. Yeah, I think I think this is a really good question. Something that it makes me think of is like you kind of have to call attention to the lack of value that human life has because if you don't call attention to it, it is just a video game. Yeah. You know, like not to use the the obvious example, but it's like you kill less people in Manhunt than you do in Uncharted. Yeah. You know, but it's like when you think about Uncharted, you're not like this is a game where human life doesn't matter because it's so sidelined that you don't even think about the fact that you are like killing people. And so I think Killer7 and and No More Heroes do walk this interesting line where they kind of they make you think about how meaningless it is. And because of that, you notice the the uncomfortability that you were referencing um, and I think I think that's really cool. I think that's why, like, even in the, you know, the kind of stupid side activities in No More Heroes, that that kind of hyper gore and the weird screams of the characters and whatever, like, they lend it a little something because it's just, like, too weird to be fully discounted. Yeah, absolutely. You want to get the next one? Yes. Um, this is from Psych Kale. Hello, Blake and Jacob. Hello. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Um, Don't call me. How'd you get my number? (laughs) At any rate, something that's interested me as the series has progressed and you've approached more and more series is how you all return to the question of not necessarily ethical boundaries, but like the merit of certain kinds of artistic depictions and the smeary, blurry line between reproduction and criticism in art. Speaking as a big-time Suda fan who got into No More Heroes at an age altogether inappropriate in the Wii (laughs) era, who has come back to a lot of work she used to like with a new critical eye and a whole new gender, I want to ask something. One, 
How do you draw the line on whether something, even if it is artistic, is distasteful, distasteful enough to not justify its presence? And two, in the vein of something like Suda or Kojima, do you think that the line moves if the person spearheading the work in question has a reputation of being someone artsy or avant? Uh, for example, Suda and his weird pitfalls with race and women that he still kind of hasn't worked out, or Kojima and his big woman issue that he still hasn't figured out to this day as of Death Stranding. I always think, when I think about something like this, I always think back to, as I do for many things in life, a Leo Vader quote. Um, uh-huh. Who one time on Game Query, the official podcaster record, said, a paraphrasing a bit, Yeah, I'm sure Birth of a Nation is a great movie and did a lot for the film industry, but we would have figured it out if that movie hadn't come out. <laughs> and I always think about that in terms of like whether despicable art that like accomplishes something or is unmistakably great in its artistry is like truly worthwhile. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's like, would someone else have figured out the accomplishments D.W. Griffith did in terms of movie making if his racist ass would have not been allowed to make that despicable film? Which, to be fair, I've not watched it. I don't really give a shit how good it is because it's a film that glamorizes the Ku Klux Klan. Fuck him. And glad he's dead. Uh, but I have to think about Leo's point there. I don't know that I super agree with it, but I like the thesis of it. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. That is, I do feel like, you know, that is, uh, it's an extreme example. I mean, to be clear, it's sure. like I, I agree with Leo or whatever. But I think this is, you know, we are talking about these games that we identify problematic yeah. elements in. But I don't you know? think the art is inherently problematic. And because it's like if we we're just playing games that are problematic across the board, like we said, we would have just done the postal hatred season and called it a day. Like I think there's like value to these games in their messages. Well that's beyond I think that's the question is how how do we decide? How do we decide that that postal and hatred are without value and these other games that we've covered that do have overt misogyny or racism or whatever are, are like, worth it where those are not. I think it's, like, general understanding of the creators, right? Like, Hatred and Postal are made by, like, Gamergate chuds. And it's like, I don't really care about exploring their worldviews. And, like, Suda is, like, clearly not that. He maybe doesn't... I don't know that I necessarily... Especially younger Suda with some of the stuff in Killer7, I don't know, think I necessarily align with his, like, all his belief systems. But I also don't think he's, like, a despicable person. Like, I think he has good ideas worth exploring. But, like, any artist, especially one making games in the early 2000s, like, he's fumbling a lot along the way. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I slightly disagree in that it's, like, I think you can do this without knowing anything about the creator. Mm. Just because, like... I think the point of the point of Birth of a Nation is to glorify the KKK. Like yep. there's like no other story in it. The point of Postal, you know, is to be like it, it is essentially like antisocial. Uh, you should, you know, go and kill game developers or ironically, but like I don't think there's anything more mm. behind that, you know. And I do think that like even though Kojima's games are, like, not great on women, they are not... Their bedrock is not a hatred of women. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it kind of, like, that gets in because Kojima does a lot of things in every game. And similarly, mm-hmm. you know, with Suda, it's, like, we we pointed out, and we will continue to point out all of these kind of, like, problematic elements of games, but it's, like, if if the game was not built with that as it's focus right you know like you walk away and you're not like the thesis statement is terrible um then i think you know i i don't i don't like using product of its time to excuse things Mm -hmm. but i do think that you can kind of understand like this is an artistic work attempting to do something interesting and also the creator's inherent kind of like biases and prejudices have worked their way in there but as long as that's not kind of like they didn't make it because they hate women yeah i think that was a very smart and eloquent way to say what i said i feel like we agree we're on the same page here yeah and it was always great to shut down dw griffith (laughs) fucking rest in piss bozo (laughs) hey uh 
Are you going to read this next one? Yeah, I, I will kind of consolidate it, okay. but it's uh, it is an interesting email. This is from Maya. Um, and Maya writes um, that that they had never heard of Killer7 until our podcast featured it um, and was really interested that we brought up the aesthetics of the game and how Suda's background as a graphic designer tied into Killer7's striking aesthetics. Um, we talked about this a lot, how like every aspect of Killer7 is designed, uh, interestingly. Um, Maya says, it was really interesting that you brought up that aspect of Suda's career because it speaks to how different things are today in regards to the handling of player controls and general visibility in games, especially when it comes to aesthetics. Graphic designers are called on to make game logos, pick out fonts and color schemes, and make promotional material, but in terms of design and functionality, we have a new department for that now, user experience or interface, UX, UI. It's a whole other field to study and master at this point, and I know a lot of graphic design majors who will minor in UX or vice versa, because while there's overlap between the two fields, they are totally separate entities. Um... Maya goes on to talk about how, you know, this kind of makes sense because for a long time, graphic design was just a catch-all that, you know, any any aspect of art went into graphic design. Um, but, says, user experience and interface is taught on a much more technical level than graphic design. It's a lot more pragmatic, more focused on polls and survey results. Um, and uh, so basically, they're saying, like, you know, it, with with this shift from graphic designers to the more specialized field of UI and UX, we're maybe not getting as much of that kind of radical Killer7 artistry in it because things have been separated out and the things that UI people have been trained in are, are less uh, artistically radical and more kind of functional. Yeah, I, I think like... I think the more I've thought about this, and Suriel said something on the episode when we were talking about this, where he's like, Suda understands that like menus aren't like just function. They also like everything is narrative. And I think like when with this shift towards cleaner aesthetics, we're one losing a lot of like um, just interesting visual design, like at its most basic. Like you can just like think of like uh, the way like uh, corporate designs have changed to that like. There's a bunch of videos about it now, like the Slack color scheme or how Google, mm -hmm. like, um, which I don't want to be too nostalgic for old, you know, ads and shit. But like, you know, there's a reason a lot of Twitter accounts exist that just post the interiors of 90s McDonald's. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because the shit was like visually interesting. And I think games are losing a lot of like um, visual impact by removing interesting design elements i think there's like there are ways menus even if they are not inherently telling a story can get across the vibe of a game or the overall tone of a game the way you're supposed to feel while playing it i think of like persona 5 and the way those menus are very flashy and bright and it kind of just tells you as the player like this is the headspace you should be in while playing this and then you play like a I don't know, the, the Yakuza series, and it's just, like, an endless menu of, like, words and, like, checklists and, like, uh, yeah. organizational tools. I mean, it's the it's the thing that everyone makes fun of where it's just, like, every game screen looks like Destiny yeah. now. Yeah, where you yeah. just have, like, a gear number and, like, green and red arrows and, like, here's how you compare these different stats. And it's like, yeah, they all look the same because that's how we've decided it's most efficient to communicate information. And I think, like, if that menu is communicating anything artistically about those types of games, it's that you might want to feel clinically about them. Like, they're kind of like a yeah. second job, you know? Like, Destiny, for as much as people play that game, I don't ever hear anyone talk very positively about having to play Destiny. It sounds like a job. And it's like, well, yeah, so the menus just look like, you know, the, the Microsoft suite. <laughs> like at that mm -hmm. point like um whereas killer seven you play that and the whole time like from the moment you boot the game up to the end credits it's like s that team was trying to think of interesting ways to catch your eye and make you be engaged with its story even if that story is nonsensical at a lot of times i feel like i was more engaged 
on a second to second basis than I am in most big budget games these days. Yeah, you know, it's like I think I think at least some of it can be kind of blamed on like um just the increasing complexity of games. Like yeah. you have to menus because every game now has a crafting system and an upgrade tree and whatever, like menus just have to be so much more uh they have to be so much more expansive and like the more expansive they are my guess is the harder it is to fit in graphical flourishes because you want it to just be you know as as kind of easily readable as possible but i think about like the difference between uh the new god of war menus and like do you remember that what the upgrade screens on the old god of yeah, war looked like you where you were like pouring the pouring blood, blood yeah. into your blades which was so cool and it's like you're both in both games you're just kind of upgrading things but the the old one kind of communicates this really Mm -hmm. interesting vibe in a way that the new one just doesn't because the new one has to make sure that you can get to like your companions gear loadout crystal upgrades efficiently (laughs) i mean i think you know you can even think about um like we both loved the resident evil 4 remake but it's like that menu, even though it is so similar to the originals menu, is less interesting looking. Like there's less kind of detail on the screen, especially with like treasures or whatever. They don't have Leon on the side anymore, which I always thought yeah. was a great touch. Yeah, it's just, you know, and I, I, I think I think aesthetics are just kind of trend based and and i imagine that in 15 years there will be people nostalgic for what these games looked like yeah as well um but i yeah it's a i playing killer seven is a kind of a reminder that it's like there is so much possibility space that we are not using uh because we want like clean looking uh games i'd also like for listeners like a more contemporary example is like check out neon white uh which was like hugely influenced by killer seven and what they do with the menus or just google the soundtrack cover arts and look at how much oh those are so sick yeah how much text is on those things and how like it is a mess but it looks so fucking good crazy shit neon white one of the best games to ever do it ready to move on all right yeah i got this one Hi, Blake and Jacob. Love the show. Oh, this comes from Ian, by the way. You mentioned in this week's episode of Killer7 that the game kind of has a weird relationship with nationalism and the existence of a Japanese national military. While I also don't know anything about the modern politics of this, the history of Japan's relationship with foreign imperialism and with Japanese imperialism itself is super interesting. Basically, Japan had been on the receiving end of a pretty brutal colonialism by the U.S. and Britain. The Meiji leadership at the time wanted to get on equal footing with the U.S. and Britain so they wouldn't get pushed around anymore, and their solution was to basically become a brutal colonial power themselves. Recently, I believe Like a Dragon Ishin kind of dealt with this time, though fumbled the back by the end of it. I I would say it uh, pointedly did not deal with Well, I I mean, it's set around this time and features some of the characters. Sorry, misspoke. Uh, But yeah, uh, fumbles the bag in a spectacular way in the final (laughs) 10 seconds of that game. Uh, Places like Taiwan, this going back to the question, places like Taiwan, Korea, and China were brutally subjugated. And the whole thing is also what led to the Sino-Japanese War, which transitioned into World War II and uh, everything that happened there. So basically, you read on the game's attitude being, I agree that U.S. imperialism is bad, but what you're proposing is just Japanese imperialism. It's pretty close to how history actually went. Um, As a bonus, the show is also super interesting to listen to um, when talking about World at War. Blake mentioned that it was incredibly uncomfortable to be gunning down hordes of Japanese soldiers compared to the German soldiers in terms of how they were uh, depicted. Interestingly, the way... Each country is depicted actually has its roots in how the U.S. propagandized Japan as compared to Germany. And um, they had sent a few uh, like history podcasts over, and this is a quote from one of them. Americans kind of had this image of both the German opponent in the Second World War and the Japanese opponent as robots, but different kind of robots. The German robot was like the vision in the Avengers, cold, robotic, mathematical, efficient, precise, and deadly because of it. There's a coldness and a logical nature in there. The Japanese is the other side of the robot spectrum. They're like foaming at the mouth, crazy robots. They don't stop. Their little finger will go after you if you leave that alone. They're ready to die for their empire, for their emperor. They're a cartoon character that's extremely dangerous. So yeah, uncomfortable indeed. Uh, In a lot of ways, I still feel like that's the way we view 
uh, Germany and Japan in World War II. I don't feel like that's changed over the years. Oh, yeah. Uh, no. That, do you Have you ever listened to uh, Hardcore History, Blake? No. That's the oh. that's the podcast that this is from. Uh, Supernova in the East is is one of the episodes of it. Honestly, you might be really in. Do you know anything about it? I don't at all. It, it's it's this guy Dan Carlin, um, who does um, who does like obsessively researched history podcasts, and they are like five hours long, and he oh. releases like one every like eight months or whatever, or he'll like do a series, but they're like unbelievably long. And I, I'm sure I am not like a history guy. I'm sure there are people who kind of have problems with how he presents it, but they seem sure. on a basic level to be like really good and interesting pictures of how things happen. And he also, uh, he, he has a, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a good podcast talker. He's uh he's very entertaining to listen to. Anyway, uh, the, the beginning of this email, uh, is, is interesting. I mean, I don't have a ton to add to it but like i think you know having japanese games grappling with their own history of uh colonialism and atrocities is something that maybe because i'm not as attuned to it i feel like i don't see very often yeah i think in general there's a really i mean and to not single out japan this is like an america problem for sure but, like, Japan definitely has a tendency to uh, overwrite its atrocities. But, like, Japan did not... <laughs> they weren't innocent in a lot of shit. You know, you can look up plenty of what they did. I think there is a um, huge tendency in just the way history is taught for leave out a lot of that. In the same way America does. I'm not going to fucking act like I don't live in a country that does that. Um, and I've had, had to spend my adult life relearning history. But... Um, I think you see that in some of these games, for sure. Especially Like a Dragon Ishin. The ending of that game's uh, a wild trip. <laughs> remember remember in that game when they are, like, they're on their way to deliver their proposed constitution to the emperor? <laughs> like, and hey, then let's write Kiryu's some shit. like, they're like, you know what we should include? We should include a clause that says all people are equal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then remember at the end of the game, he looks directly in the camera for a call to national Japanese nationalism. He's like, he's like, hey, Japan might screw up, but it won't be a big deal because we'll always be a great country. Now here's the thing. I disagree, Kiryu. Um, what was his name? It wasn't Kiryu. Uh, well, he was, he was the, uh, he had like three names. Oh, right? right. Yeah. And now the game coming out in a few months, he's erased his name. Yeah, that's right. Um, Deep cut uh, Sakamoto Ryoma. Right, of right, 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 right. What a game! I mean, I do like that game, but boy, I just wish I could take out that last speech. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, Devesh Singh writes in and says, um, "Oh, it, it, this is very relevant. Uh, as far as I can tell, this season is the first to be on Japanese games, with DMC being a weird edge case." Do you think the country of origin changes the nature of rottenness in terms of content and presentation? Um, as uh, as we've talked about, uh, Battles Without Honor and Humanity, Deadly Fight, uh, is an influence on Killer7. Is Japanese cinema a noticeable influence on this game's style in the same way Live Leak influenced Kane and mm. Lynch 2? Uh, on a similar direction, I found it interesting how Killer7 only uses English in its voice acting, even in the Japanese version. I did not realize that. Do you think this is a choice worth digging into or simply a consequence of the game's production? Um, I I think the choice is based on just, and maybe I'm wrong, but just the game being set in America and Suda making an artistic choice there. It's kind of like how Kojima now, because he has such an American cast, usually writes his games in English first and then it's translated back to Japanese. Um, or I'm yeah, sure but he I writes mean, I them do in think... Japanese, but you know what I mean. It's written for the American cast first. Uh, well, but I think... I think that that is, it is an artistic choice. Yeah. And I think it's like for Kojima, he is so obsessed with uh, American cinema and American actors and whatever that I think he is, he is not only writing his story for those actors, but like conceptualizing his stories as uh, English speaking movies mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, yep. perhaps more than he used to. Yep. Um, and I do think, uh, I mean, I, I imagine it is partially 
budgetary and partially you know like storage on the game's disc or whatever but like i think it is a choice to to have them only speak english um but yeah the the broader part of this question on like a country's influence on what rottenness means yeah i mean well first off in terms of like um the japanese cinema being an influence on it i think we talked in our bonus episode with gareth about deadly fight or hiroshima deathmatch whichever name you want to use for it uh being just like directly relatable to the garcian plotline yeah i also think like takashi miike's uh, films are very huge influences on him in terms of especially stuff like um i would say ichi the killer aesthetically and also violence wise but also some of the nihilism in his films like ichi uh, feel very present in something like Killer7. In terms of rottenness in Japanese media, one thing that I'm usually taken by is like, probably not in the biggest blockbusters, but in big budget films, you know, things that are going to get probably a full theatrical release in Japan. Um, they are often, I find, not an expert in the field, but I watch a lot of Japanese movies, more willing to go places English American movies do not, you know what I'm saying? Um, in terms of violence and nihilism and um, j- just general overall rottenness that I don't think is as common in American movies. And I don't know mm-hmm. if that's because like studios have a bigger hand on American movies, if that would be more common if studios did not have as big of a creative influence, or that's a Japanese thing in general. I think like... It's not uncommon to read a very popular Japanese book or manga or whatever the case might be and be like, this is fucking grisly. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. Which is to not say to not to say they don't have rom-coms and normal dramas and, you know, children's shows, etc. But I think it is more prevalent for sure. I just am not sure the hows or whys of that. Yeah. You know, it's. A, I was trying to think of like, what are our most violent mainstream movies like in the u.s and it's like immediately i was like old john wick Mm -hmm. and john wick is like extremely japanese inspired you know like john wick is essentially just like a samurai movie or whatever that uh being brought into modern times and a lot of times i think we couch our violence in because it's like america makes super violent movies but a lot of times it is uh militaristic Mm -hmm. you know it is like uh depictions of soldiers doing things or um or it's kind of like horror slasher genre which obviously japanese has plenty of sure um but it is yeah it's interesting to think about um uh i i wish i wish we could talk about the game that we're playing for next season but it's like how how kind of america's goriest games differ from uh from japan's because i also think you know on kind of the other side it's like i recently played final fantasy 16 uh which is uh you know a a japanese attempt to do a very not american but european uh story clearly very like game of thrones and they're like oh it's rated m you know we're gonna do stuff and it's like they don't really sell it like the gore in that game doesn't really work you know i i I don't love game of thrones but you watch game of thrones and you're like the gore in this is like doing things in a way that final fantasy 16 like does not Mm. and so i do think that in terms of like gameness it's it's hard to think of uh it doesn't feel like the japanese games are quite doing the same just like level of uh grotesque and disgust um that american and and kind of in general western games are doing right now it's like what are what are the goriest games you know it's it's stuff like mortal Kombat, and whatever where people are staring at uh corpses for weeks on end i think on the film side though you do see um japanese films often being more grim or more nasty um Mm -hmm. in ways that i think are interesting one that comes to mind i don't know if you've seen or heard of world of kaneko i have heard that name okay you might have heard aj and me talk about because it's a movie i fucking love um but that is a movie that like debuted at like number four when it came out and like made a good amount of money and stars uh koji yakusho who like recently won best actor at Cannes and has won like best actor at the asian film awards like he's a huge name when you go he used to be one of the uh, faces of boss coffee along with tommy lee jones so you just see uh-huh. massive billboards in like th- across the country with just his big ass face on it 
at Big Ass Face. <laughs> um, World of Conico is like one of the grimmest films I have ever seen. And it's like, imagine Brad Pitt being in a movie full of that much violence and nihilism and just like nastiness and it not being directed by Quentin Tarantino. Like, I think that's just more common over there. Mm-hmm. I think there is this interesting line yeah. that is like more easily crossed over there and that audiences, at least on the film side, seem more willing to go see films and get films made with that level of content. Um that American films don't seem to have in all cases. Do you think it is also there is a function of um, kind of culturally what you're used to and being shocked by something outside of that? You know, it kind of another way of asking that is like if if you had watched Japanese films your whole life and you came over and you're like a crash course in American movies, I'm going to start watching all the classics like would there be things that you would be shocked by uh, their inclusion, you know, and you'd be like, oh, my God, this would never be in a Japanese movie? I have no clue. I genuinely don't know. I've never really thought about it from that perspective. Um, I don't know. Does anything come to mind for you? I, no, but I, I really, you know, have only I'm only a very baby in watching kind of international cinema. I mean, I think broadly speaking, I do feel like at least in terms of. You know, like, this this conversation is couched in, like, studio production films, right? Mm-hmm. I think American films, by and large, are more prudish and than a lot of territories. Um, like, you can think of French films, especially in terms of just, like, the amount of uh, sex they are willing to put on screen. Yeah. And certainly, in the late 90s and 2000s, the violence they put on screen. Um, South Korean cinema is no different. Like, revenge dramas are or at least were um a decade ago huge money makers over there um and you know i'm not trying to distill anyone's film industry down to violent or taboo films but i think when we're talking about that type of stuff and what gets made in production pipelines or studio pipelines america is definitely more uh it's more normal for them to want to take a step back to reduce violence i don't know if that's an audience issue an mpaa issue i don't really know what it is but i think compared to other countries like we do we're a bit of prudes sometimes i mean it's it's interesting you bring that up because it's like well if you think about uh 15 years ago or whatever like wanted not wanted um uh taken Mm -hmm. uh was a huge movie which is a uh essentially a revenge drama where a guy's daughter gets kidnapped and like sex trafficked or whatever and i think there are there are similar things like that but it's like in wanted you don't really you know it's like that movie is is just kind of liam neeson killing people you know and it's like it does not quite go to the places that even even in some of the you know very little films that i've seen Mm -hmm. uh and it doesn't go there yeah it's it's interesting i part of me thinks it's not an audience thing it's more of an mpaa thing at this point because you hear so many stories about the dumb shit directors have to cut from films to not get in C-17 rating, to get it down to R. Yeah, well, and it's like the issue of violence, I think, is is specifically interesting because it's like I've always felt that, like, at least on TV, we have this uh, ridiculous view of what is appropriate or not because you could turn on The Walking Dead, like, at prime time yeah. and see people's, like, faces being ripped off their bodies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, like you couldn't see you know a boob yeah and and i was like that's that is ridiculous you know our 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 relationship with violence is so skewed one way and our relationship with sex is so skewed another way um but you are you know what you're describing is kind of both violence and sex being more prevalent and it's like i i've never thought of us as had a country a country that had a problem with depicting violence before i guess is what i'd say i also i i think the level of violence is a little different in terms of how violence is depicted, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think American films, I mean, granted, Walking Dead's a special case because it's a horror film, but you think about, like, John Wick. They're not particularly bloody films. You know, they don't, like, pause on the violence at all. The momentum yeah. is kind of the point of it. And I think in, I think you could see in other countries the violence is certainly more reflected upon or... You spend more time with the violence and see the aftermath of violence more. Um, yeah, I I don't know this. This feels to me too 
generalize sure, each because sure. I just I just feel like you could find so many examples of movies yeah. not doing well. That. To undercut my whole thing, what was one of the biggest movies of last year was Jackass 4, so I don't fucking know what's going on with American audiences and the way films get made, because that thing and made... We love to see a guy pogo sticked in the ball. And that made, that movie made an unbelievable amount of money, so what do I fucking know? Uh, um, Alright, we have a question from Lewis, or Louie, um, asking, uh, basically saying that... Um, uh, they saw uh, screenshots of Killer7 in the official Nintendo magazine and had to hide it from their parents because they were so explicit. Um, are there? Do you have any media that had a profound impact on you, yet you couldn't outwardly talk about it due to its content? My mom took my copy of Cannibal Holocaust when I was a kid and didn't give it back to me until I turned 18. Wow. So sad. Yeah, that was... Every child should have access to Cannibal Holocaust. My friend Johnny Munch, shouts out to the king, go listen to Greyhaven, buy some drip from fromthevoid.co, uh, bought it for me for my like 15th birthday, and my mom watched it with us, and she was like, all right, you've seen the movie, and now I'm taking it, and when you turn 18, you can have it back. And when I turned 18, Jesus. I got it back. I still have it. The idea, my mom would, did she watch the whole film with you? Yeah. My mom would, five minutes in, be like, no fucking thanks. You know, if I was 15, she would have taken it. Mm-hmm. But even now, she would, like, let me watch it. But I would never be able Bro, to make her stay in the room. My mom's sick as hell. Not too long ago, I was back home, and she's like, you've been watching that Resident Evil TV show? And I was like, no, mom, life is too short. And she's like, it's pretty bad, but the, the gore is so sick. And I was like, cut from the same cloth, mom. What's up? Uh, I still haven't watched the Resident Evil show. But yeah, that one... Um, there's a couple. <laughs> Jacob, do you have any? I assume not. Not really. You know, there are certainly just, like, things that I, I've talked about, like, those those Hitman ads in Game Informer magazines yeah. before, where it was just, like, a, a dead lady in lingerie, and it was, like, beautifully executed. Yeah. I'd just be like, hope my parents don't <laughs> see that page, because I want them to think that this isn't a hobby for perverts. There's a couple movies I have that when I start seeing a new person... I'll take off my shelf and then reintroduce over time back on the shelf and hope they don't ever notice. That's a true thing. I'll hide a couple movies. And one of those is Guinea Pig 2, Flower, Flesh, and Blood. That's so funny. The box art is so fucking despicable um, that I don't want them to see it next to like, be like, oh, he, he's got a copy of Breakfast at Tiffany's? What's Guinea Pig 2? Can't be having that. Third date? Come on now. Uh, so so yes um okay benjamin allen quickly just says how much money do i need to shell out for a near season of this podcast it's what the people want i'll do it for free you gotta ask jacob though we just need to figure out what it looked like would it just be automata would we be playing like the first one i mean our fans i think that's what the people want yeah i haven't played i, I haven't played near i don't know it's supposed to be good but like i'll play automata again for sure it's i think i the impression I've always got of the original Nier is it's like, it is really good, but it's one of those where you really need people to tell you, hey, it's good, because when you start playing, your impression is not going to be, what a good game I'm playing. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much of that has been made easier with the remake, right, for PS4. Yeah, I'm not sure. We'll have to consult expert Michael Hyam, because he'll know. I'll talk to him about it, but I would do an automata season because I think that game's rotten. And I think it's worth talking about. All right, Blake, this seems like a question made for you, so go ahead. Just a quickie. You guys ever encounter an album or song that jumped out as rotten? For me, recently, that's how I felt while discovering uh, Neutral Milk Hotel's entire discography. I know I'm pretty late to the party, but especially in their In the Airplane Over the Sea album and Songs Against Sex, which in my opinion is also probably the best song title ever and generally a banger. Just so many fleshy, raw, lurid depictions and this endless fount of pained optimism teetering on the edge of and threatening to tip over into brutal cold nihilism, but never quite getting there. Plus, sonically, all the unhinged bass and fuzz and overdrive and pain vocals. Also, the kind of weird Anne Frank stuff. I try not to think about it, honestly. The explanations for why it's not that weird don't hold up super well. I am up. This comes from Zed. Yeah, Neutral Cocktail fan? Uh, you know, I like, I like that one song. The only girl I've ever loved. Yeah. That one. Oh, so not the normal one. What's the normal one? Uh, in the airplane over the sea. Yeah, no, I like what that song that I like is like Holland 1945 yeah, or yeah. something, right? 
Yeah, I in the airplane over the sea itself is fine, but I I like I like that Holland one, but I'm not a I'm not an expert on neutral milk hotel. Oh, when I was a teenager, I really liked them, and I've not listened to them since. I really liked the song. Uh, what was it? Avery Island. I really liked that song. I really liked the airplane album. Uh, but other rotten ones. Uh, I caught this in the damn Sun the Rotten channel in your Discord recently. People were talking about Death Grips, rotten ass band. Oh my god. Uh, but their song, I've seen footage, is about shock sites. And I had no clue. And I went back and listened to it. And I was like, this is literally just about looking at shock sites. Um, other than that, I mean, you have your obvious ones, like a bunch of the Norwegian black metal shit. I mean, they put, as that famous story of, oh, who is it? Mayhem, maybe, where one of their members fucking blew his brains out. So they put it on an album cover or some shit that's fucking rotten. Um, all of the deathcore stuff from the early 2000s that aged terribly. Like waking the cadaver, annotations of an autopsy, which annotations of an autopsy still fucking goes. That band's fucking awesome. Um, probably some of the Carnifex and Whitechapel shit, um, horrorcore in general, <laughs> as a general concept and genre. Uh, that like uh, when you buy like a Halloween CD to put on, is that horrorcore? <laughs> no like it has like a cat like meow. horrorcore is like uh it's a rap genre that's like uh have you ever heard of, like tech nine uh, those, those little skateboards that you <laughs> tech, <laughs> skate around with your fingers tech decks? i have a tech deck right beside me if you believe it <laughs> um hey uh tony hawk's pro skater tech deck uh, so yeah i mean there's lots of rotten music and a lot of stuff was not made intentionally to be rotten and is only rotten in retrospect as we realized a lot of like emo was horribly misogynistic like, a lot of Taking Back Sunday shit and, like, brand new Jesus fucking Christ. All that stuff is, like, as we've gotten older and looked back on it, be like, that's fucking rotten. Those are some terrible views to hold against women. And we pray at least some of those men, well, we pray all of them don't have those views anymore, but I think history has showed a lot of them do. But we pray some of them found the way out. Um, so, yeah, lots of rotten music. And, Jacob, I'm sure you're familiar with Waking the Cadaver, Annotations of an Autopsy. Oh, yeah, Dude, my, my fave. 2007, the Sludge City EP from Annotations of an Autopsy with Gore Gore Gadget. Crazy song. Still throw that on all the fucking time. Um, the old Chelsea Grin EP, Shane Stokes and all that shit. I'll make your insides on the fucking outside. <laughs> Great shit. Um, tons of rotten music. Yeah, uh, and, uh, you know, Blake took all of mine, so I, I don't really have anything to add. <laughs> Not a single one. Um, Not a single one. There's no Phoebe Bridgers rotten song. Phoebe Bridges. What fuck? Which one is the singer? Well, they're all the singer. Phoebe Bridgers? Phoebe Waller. Sam Porter Bridgers? Phoebe Waller Bridges? Phoebe Phoebe Waller uh, Briggs? Bridge is, is Fleabag. Oh. The actor. Okay. And Phoebe... Sam Porter Bridgers... Uh, crosses the country and phoebe bridgers is kyoto boy genius yeah okay got it who could get them mixed up okay brendan quick fires some questions here's the one that i think we should wrap up the show with uh what's the least rotten game you've ever played i'm playing skater vr right now skateboarding game in vr nothing rotten to it you think that's not rotten no you dude. fall and break your leg no you fall and you immediately warp back to the the skateboard jacob it's a fucking good game. It's really fun. I'm going to play it as soon as we get off this podcast. How do you do, like, tricks? Okay, so... D- Is it just controller? So you have the two... I'm playing it on PSVR 2, so you have the two VR controllers. And those mimic foot movements, right? So when you ollie up and you want to do a kickflip, you have to flick your arm up and out off the left side of the board and then catch it with, like, the X button. And then if you want to do, like, a pop-shove it, you'll take your right hand and you'll flip it behind you and the board will shove it it's fucking cool it it has a lot in common with like skate and how that those are played i was thinking of because i remember when skate came out kind of the advertising behind it was like this is not like tony hawk where you press Mm -hmm. a button and do a trick like you have to learn the movements on the stick itself and this seems like an evolution of that yeah it's it's very very difficult but last night i was doing uh i was doing a kickflip over a gap grabbing the tail to catch and then landing like nine feet below and it just like feels like you're fucking doing it in real life it's really cool made by a one person team no less is it uh is it nauseating no not really at all i've had no nausea problems in psvr too at all like Damn. even playing res area x where you're like 360ing and flying around all the time like 
literally no problems. I think I honestly res surprises me less than because that one it's like it's zero you're just kind of like it's nothing. It's like zero gravity. Yeah. Something like like skate because the problem is always just when you feel like your feet should be moving and they're not moving. Mm-hmm. Like that's when I get kind of like Ugh. Um, but my guess is also that the PSVR has kind of tighter quality controls on it than like the random shit that I will download on PC sometimes. Yeah, maybe. I'll say this is also a one person team, so I expected less from it. But like it's yeah. it's really, really impressive. Um so that's probably the least rotten game I've ever played. I, I think Res is a pretty good uh answer. But, but um, Res is about climate change at the end of the world. Yeah, but like positive, you know. So is like flower. It's not saying that the world is going to end. I don't know. I think it is. And Res, you play like a malicious computer virus. Yeah, but the end is like good, right? Don't you like free the virus? There's a boss that runs away from you in fear. Oh, that's right. <laughs> okay, well, it's not Res. Um, I was. Actually, my my first thought was uh, the game everything. Oh, uh, cool! David O'Reilly's everything, which I think is a really good game mm-hmm. uh, in general, but is also uh, you know a game about just like everything being connected and everything being part of one kind of ecosystem, and to, for one thing to exist means that everything exists and all that, and yep. it is just like a very. Uh, it is it is the opposite of nihilism you know it is just like everything has meaning because it exists yeah um can we answer the other question too i think it's cool which one um are there any game series you have avoid playing because you think they may come up on the pod well i feel like this is a peek behind the curtain but i have some okay it's fucking the silver case and 25th ward i want to play them so fucking bad but i'm like are we gonna do those for the god just play them if I do, I can't do them for the pod. I don't like replaying games. Um, I uh, have been holding off on playing Amnesia the Bunker because I think mm-hmm. an Amnesia series would be interesting, and that game seems interesting. Um, that's about it. Yeah. I've been I wait- love replaying games. I've been waiting to play Postal 3. Yeah, you can't wait. Return. To- Every day you ask me. Um, well, look. That's it for this finale of the Suda season. Uh, we hope you enjoyed hearing us answer questions um check out that bonus episode on nebula it's already out uh and it will give you a little sneak peek of what our next season is going to be i gotta play a lot of that tonight long ass game god damn it's a long ass game but blake uh you're excited about it right absolutely i'm excited to play it tonight i'm excited about it i'm skipping a wedding rehearsal dinner because i gotta play it so i don't lose track that's not the reason i'm skipping it i just don't can't afford a wedding rehearsal dinner tonight uh well until then My name is Jacob Geller. I have been joined by Blake Hester. And uh, we'll let's let's find that exit they call paradise. Glad you didn't say the other thing you've been saying this season. (laughs)